This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Too seldom people think, and even more rarely do they think again. That's what makes the conversation today with Professor Stanley Fish all the more interesting. Stanley Fish is an intellectual force of energy. He's one of the most interesting people in the American intellectual scene. He has held posts teaching literature and law in major American universities. He's the author of many works, including, Is There a Text in This Class? The Authority of Interpretive Communities, The Problem with Principle, Save the World on Your Own Time, How to Write a Sentence, and most recently, The Book That Occasions This Conversation. Think Again, Contrarian Reflections on Life, Culture, Politics, Religion, Law, and Education. Dr. Fish, I really enjoyed our conversation almost now five years ago. And in terms of your new book entitled Think Again, Contrarian Reflections on Life, Culture, Politics, Religion, Law, and Education, it appears that uh, in the last five years, there are few things about which you have not thought and written. (laughs) Well, things catch your attention. It's uh, this is an exciting uh, time to be alive. Well, you wrote most of these pieces for the New York Times, and many of them attracted a great deal of attention. But uh, let, let me just go to the heart of, uh, of I think, the kind of question that, uh, that, that, that someone who is an evangelical Christian would want to ask Stanley Fish. Can, can we genuinely know anything? Uh, yes. Uh, there's no attack on the concept of knowledge in my work. Unless by no, you mean no in a way that could be demonstrated to any rational person, no matter what his beliefs or lack of belief. Uh, That's, of course, a very severe requirement. Uh, And it's basically the requirement of knowledge independently of any human perspective. That kind of knowledge is not available to us. Um, we would either uh, we would have to be um, in the position of God that is able to take a God's eye synoptic synoptic view of everything, uh, and no one of us is able to do that. Often, when people make a requirement, especially uh, a requirement uh, that is addressed to religious believers, the point is made that religion cannot deliver objective knowledge, uh, by which is meant usually knowledge that is verifiable uh, by empirical, rational, or scientific uh, methods. Uh, But that is to make a double mistake. The first mistake is to think that rational or empirical knowledge is itself independent of preconceptions uh, or of assumptions or of a perspective. And the other mistake is to assume that rational or empirical evidence is conclusive when it comes to matters of faith. And I think both of those mistakes are made over and over again um, by those uh, who um, make a living, as it were, out of attacking religion. Well, I want to turn to your, your critique of the new atheists, as they're called, in just a moment. But I want to go to the preface to your book, Is All Knowledge perspectival, and are all perspectives merely political? Uh, the answer to the question, uh, questions are as, uh, are as follows. The answer to the first one is yes. The answer to the second is no. Uh, if by uh, political you mean political in the partisan sense. If, on the other hand, you mean by political stemming from some challengeable point of view, or some point of view not held by every rational being, yes, all knowledge is like that. That is, the the dream uh, of rationalists and empiricists especially is to find a way of validating statements uh, that uh, depends on no particular set of beliefs. Uh, And I think that is a fool's errand. Uh, it will never it will never succeed. Any knowledge that we have, any certainty uh, that possesses us, will be a certainty that is experienced 
within some set of assumptions or presuppositions uh, or beliefs. Um, if we were to wish to step outside of all assumptions, presuppositions, and beliefs, we would find ourselves nowhere, and we would also be unable even to know what the meaning of the word no was. But that appears to no. That appears to place you somewhere uh, other than one of two extremes. One would be uh, uh, absolute uh, epistemological realism on the one hand, yeah. and on the other hand, those who uh, who claim that all truth is merely socially constructed. You you yeah. you don't yeah. appear to be standing in either of those two no, positions. No, no. In fact, in a sense, and again, one must be careful about these uh, proclamations. The truth, if it is true that all all uh, that all truths or matters of fact uh, or conclusions based on evidence are socially constructed, then that truth is one that is inert and useless. Because if everything is socially constructed, to say of it that it is socially constructed is to say nothing, and is certainly uh, not to say something that, that could form the basis of a criticism of that which was socially constructed, since everything is. So what I'm saying is that the socially constructed thesis, while true on a very general level, is trivially, trivially true. You can't go from it to any conclusion about a particular matter of fact, whether the matter of fact exists in the realm of science or politics or religion or any other realm. Uh, every time I read one of your works, and this goes back to the very beginning of, uh, of my intellectual engagement with you in the 1980s, uh, I, I, I fail generally to understand where you are, and in this book it's more clear than ever that that's at least a part of your intention. That's uh, right. Uh, that is, uh, I no doubt, uh, well, I don't even know, I shouldn't pronounce on my own uh, 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 intellectual or spiritual state, but I no doubt believe a number of things and uh, have positions on any number of controversial questions, but it's not my purpose uh, in these small essays to reveal any of my positions uh, and then to argue for any of them. Rather, what I'm trying to do is unpack the arguments that turn up in the public square, usually with a view toward uh, undermining some of those arguments uh, that have seemed to many to be persuasive or even commonplace. So that's the work done by these columns, or at least the work I hope is done by these columns, uh, hence the title, Think Again. I want to go directly at one of those uh, very central uh, uh principles of, of your criticism here or, uh, or, or aspects of contemporary thought that, uh, that, that would be taken by many, especially in the academy, as, uh, as axiomatic. In your section in which you are thinking out loud about religion, you, you point to the fact that uh, though there might be credible arguments—I uh, don't mean to put words in your mouth, but uh, you, you, you say there could be good arguments against theism—you suggest that the the so-called new atheists, in particular uh, uh, Dawkins and Harris and, and Hitchens, are not offering good arguments against theism. Yes, that's correct, because they offer those arguments in ignorance of the uh, target of their criticism. Um, they write as if objections uh, to theism based on suffering in the world, for example, is something that they just thought up this morning. Whereas, in, as you know better than I, uh, much of Christian literature is a meditation on problems like the problem of suffering or the origin of evil. So that the tradition that the new atheists attack is much richer in, in its consideration of the very questions uh, they raise. You know, in your, in your work, you do a, a, a very considerable um, a work at, at deconstructing, we might say, 
uh, many of the modern secular assumptions concerning where religion can and should fit into the modern world. And uh, in many ways, I think that that's the most interesting portion of your work and of, of this particular book. So, so when, when you are addressing the way that, uh, that the modern secular theorist believes, uh, that theorist believes about religion, uh, and I said that as carefully as I could, when, when they think about the place that religion should have in society, what, what are they actually saying? What they're usually saying, if they're, let's say, speaking in the liberal mode or in the, or in the mode of liberal democracy, they're saying, let's not discriminate against anyone because of his or her religion. Let religious voices be heard in the country. But at the same time, they're saying uh, that doesn't mean that we have to take them seriously. We have to allow them, permit them, as social phenomenon in, in, our, in, a, in our political space. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, that we then have to Shall we give them a voice uh, in uh, political policy deliberations? So the liberal tradition, at least a large part of the liberal tradition, has the strategy, and I've sometimes said this, of honoring religion by kicking it upstairs. Uh, it's uh, something uh, that uh, we should uh, uh, recognize um, and uh, uh, and allow. Uh, and 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 perhaps uh, celebrate, uh, but we want to keep it uh, in the sphere uh, of thought, expression, and faith, and not allow religious perspectives to uh, invade uh, the, the arena of political consideration. So that does two things, and uh, and you ad- identify one of them directly. Let me ask you about the other one rather uh, indirectly. The first thing that does is to allow only religions that do not have any public significance. And, uh, and you address that in, in terms of, uh, uh, of how you see these uh, secular theorists trying to place religion in, uh, in a safe position over against modern that's right. societies. And that's, usually, and that's usually done by the device, a very handy device, of the public-private distinction, which is, I'm sure you know, is central uh, to large portions of liberal thought. So the idea is that we should allow religious perspectives to flourish in the private spaces of the home, the chapel, the synagogue, uh, the mosque, the church. Uh, but when we venture out into the public square, either to do business in a mercantile sense or to do political business, uh, we should leave our religious views at home. Uh, and the argument is then made, because if we don't, we're going to be speaking to people, other people, in a language they do not share. Instead, the liberal will then say, let's all agree to speak a language uh, that has no metaphysical or theological hostages, uh, and then we will be able uh, to uh, to uh, speak uh, in a way that affords perfect communication between us. Uh, there are many problems with that, and, and one obvious problem is that there is no language that is free of uh, substantive assumptions uh, or metaphysical uh, or metaphysical underpinnings. Um, liberal thought thinks that it has discovered such a language. Um, in the uh, in the workings uh, of empirical science, uh, but th- but that but that project, um, as uh, productive uh, and amazing as it is, is based no less on uh, a set of metaphysical assumptions than any other. Well, that's um, a question I wanted to ask you straightforwardly because. Uh, I, I appreciate it very much where in the book you discuss this as, as kind of a form of intellectual political apartheid, which is this public-private distinction. But I want to ask you honestly, does, does anyone actually hold to an absolute public-private distinction? You've been in the academy for, for your entire adult life, and it appears to me that, that those who hold to supposedly secular worldviews are amongst the first to, uh, to have very 
very strong insistence on the uh, on the public significance of, of their own worldview. Well, that's true, and that 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 touches on another area of my work um, on the topic of academic freedom, uh, where my complaint is that too many academics believe that the freedom that is given them by the doctrine of academic freedom is the freedom uh, to parade and indeed uh, uh, indoctrinate uh, on the basis of their own political views. And I want to say that, no, that's not the business that the the, uh, academy uh, is in. Um, And so you're quite right. Uh, 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 Cod-carrying liberal rationalists uh, will, uh, at the drop of an academic hat, uh, become political activists, and I've been arguing against that for a long time. Not that they shouldn't be political activists if they wish to be on their own time, but they shouldn't be doing this on the college or university's time. That is neither what they were paid to do nor what they were trained to do. I want to ask you about a text, and uh, and, and not just about uh, any particular text, although the Constitution of the United States or, or, or the Bible might be in the background of this question. But you have, you've been well known throughout your, uh, your public career as, uh, as dealing with how we should engage a text. And our conversation comes relatively fast on the heels of the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, about whom you wrote in terms of his jurisprudence and his, his uh, constitutionalism. You wrote two articles, one on uh, why Antonin Scalia is right and the other on why Antonin Scalia is wrong, and the text was central to your analysis. Can you expand upon that now? Yes, I will, but before I can I tell you a little story? Please do. In 37 years of marriage, I've only been able to impress my wife once, and that was uh, when we were driving to another town for a doctor's appointment. The telephone rang uh, while we were in the car, and I answered it. And I said to the person at the other end, yes, uh, I'm available at the, at the moment. And uh, a moment later, obviously, someone had picked up the phone and said hello to me. And then I said, and good morning to you, Justice Scalia. Uh, and at that moment, my wife looked at me with the, uh, maybe, this, maybe this guy I've married has something to him after all, look. So uh, I'll be over, I'll be forever grateful for Justice Scalia for um, giving me the one occasion on which I was able to impress my wife. Well, that 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 is a moving story in and of itself, but it also tells me something about uh, about you and about Justice Scalia that the phone call took place. Oh yes, he was yeah yeah he was he he came to the Cardoza Law School to participate um, in, a, in a in a in an occasion that was. Uh, in my honor. Uh, so he, he came to honor me, and I was honored uh, by his participation. But to get back to your question, uh, Justice Scalia and I uh, are, or were, I guess in his case, uh, unfortunately, both originalists. In, in, and an originalist, uh, at least in the context of constitutional interpretation, is someone who believes that basically the act of interpretation is the act of trying to figure out what the text originally meant uh, when it was produced uh, in at, at whatever date. Uh, and I would say that that understanding of interpretation, that you're trying to figure out what some speaker or writer meant, is not an approach to interpretation. It is interpretation. Because what else could you be doing when you're trying to interpret the words of another uh, except trying to figure out what that other meant by, uh, by these words? Where Scalia and I diverge um, is that he is a textualist originalist, and I am an intentionalist originalist. A textualist originalist thinks that the answer to the question, well, what was meant by this text at the time of its production, is to be found by examining the text in and of itself, uh, independently of any consideration of intention, or, Scalia said, independently of any consideration of legislative history. I, on the other hand, uh, am firmly persuaded 
that uh, the only way to get at the meaning of a text is to figure out what the author had in mind, or authors had in mind at the moment of its production. And that if you just look at the text in and of itself, it won't tell you anything, or it will tell you too many things. Uh, but, is, but if you can at least make a good guess based on the available evidence of, about the spirit or purpose within which this utterance emerged, then uh, you will have a way of determining what the text meant. So that we're both originalists, but uh, 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 we uh, uh, diverge in the version of, a religi- of originalism each of us follows. You know, that's really interesting because uh, toward the end of his life, Justice Scalia actually preferred not to call himself an originalist at all, but rather a textualist, which just kind of affirms yeah, your analysis. Yeah, well, that's right. Then that's right. His textualism and my intentionalism, again, are both variants of originalism. But originalism is, uh, is, is I guess, uh, 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 the mothership yes. that housed us, houses us both. So that, that leads to a couple of questions to me. The first is, you said that that is not uh, a method of interpretation. It is interpretation. So how can it be that in the modern academy, interpretation is evidently something other than what you just defined it to be? Well, it's not only, you know, well, it's because people have confused interpretation uh, and therefore meaning uh, with communication. Many have observed that uh, any text that has either been uttered or written is available to many interpretations. And that has led people incorrectly to assume that texts or spoken words are irremediably uh, ambiguous. Uh, And I would reply, no, that's not the case. The debates about interpretation, the the interpretive debates over a text, either written uh, or oral, are always debates about the spirit within which the text emerged, always debates about what the author or authors had in mind. And people who have different answers to that question, what the author or authors had in mind, uh, will then see the text as meaning differently. And there's been the unwarranted conclusion from that, uh, from, from, from that picture of interpretation uh, that interpretation is entirely subjective and can go in any direction uh, one likes. It's not subjective. Neither is it objective in the sense that there's any machine for producing correct interpretations. What you have to do, and it's an empirical exercise, is to try to figure out as best you can what the author or authors had in mind. Let me give you an example. My wife and I got off a plane in the small town of Stuart, Newburgh, uh, rather Newburgh, New York, uh, Stuart Newburgh Airport at quarter to 12 in the evening, that is 15 minutes before midnight. And we were immediately uh, met as we stepped off the plane uh, into the terminal by a sign that said, hot panini sandwiches now being served in the Euro Cafe. So the question is, what does that sign mean? And it's obviously that the sign could mean at least two things, actually more, but we'll stick to two. It could mean either if you trot down the hall right now to the Euro Cafe, you will be able to enjoy a hot panini sandwich. Or it could mean we have now added hot panini sandwiches to our menu. So how do you figure out which it means? And the answer is that you have to put yourself in the place of those who produce the sign, And you have to also note that you're in a rural airport in upstate New York and that in almost any airport in this country, aside from O'Hare and a couple of others, no restaurants are open at quarter to 12 in the evening. And therefore, through that kind of empirical reasoning, you can figure out what the author or authors of the sign had in mind. The text itself won't tell you. 
And that's why I'm an intentionalist, not a textualist. To be human is to be an interpretive creature. Christians explain this from the biblical worldview by understanding that every single human being is made in the image of God. Thus, we are interpreting all the time. We are interpreting what we see. We are interpreting what we experience. We are interpreting what we hear. And of course, we are interpreting what we read. But how that interpretation takes place makes all the difference. What are the boundaries? What are the structures of that interpretation? What are the principles by which a correct interpretation can be contrasted with an incorrect interpretation? Or for that matter, is any interpretation superior to any other? The Christian worldview has a particular stake in that question, and at the end of the day, a particular answer to it as well. questions derived from that. Uh, well, one is where in your book you look at the Supreme Court's decision in the gun control case, uh, that is yeah. uh, the Heller decision, and right. uh, by no coincidence it was Justice Scalia who wrote the majority opinion. It was a 5-4 opinion, but one of the things that many people noted in the aftermath of Justice Scalia's death is that even though people differed with him in terms of reading the text or the intention behind the text— uh, just about everyone accepted the argument to the extent that they all did argue uh, from what they believed to be the intention of the text. And that's why in one of your essays in this book, you say, though the decision was 5-4, the, uh, the, the, the victory for intentionalism was 9-0. to zero. Absolutely, because they are all, that was what the disagreement was about. Uh, and Scalia had one view of what the, intent, what the, what the, what the uh, framers had in mind. Justice Stevens had a second uh, and uh, Justice Breyer had a third. Uh, but they were all tr- trying to get at the same thing um, and uh, just doing it uh, uh, by different uh, routes. Um, so, yes, uh, that I thought was a case that was a clear victory for an intentionalism. It was also, in my view, uh, an, a textbook example of why textualism uh, uh, why textualism is the wrong version of originalism. Because in that decision, what Scalia does is he takes the words of the Second Amendment, and rather than considering them as they appear in the linear sequence of their unfolding, he atomizes them, takes each word separately, not even in the order in which they appear in the Second Amendment, uh, and then looks in any number of dictionaries and other places for meanings that he might attach to these detached words. And I say, uh, I, I believe that the trouble with that method is that it's a fail-safe method. It cannot help but succeed. Uh, since you've removed yourself from the constraint of the linear syntax and are just left with uh, inert words waiting to be plumbed, you can plumb them in any direction that you like. So I thought that Scalia's methodology there uh, was entirely inappropriate. But I would also note that that is also the methodology of some famous 17th century Anglican preachers, notably Lancelot Andrews, whose sermons proceed in exactly the way that Scalia proceeds uh, in D.C. versus Hella. Uh, the difference is that Andrews, like other uh, Christian preachers, assume that the meaning of anything that you looked at in the world uh, would be either a celebration of deity or an injunction to men and women to love each other for deity's sake. So that the, uh, the detaching of the biblical texts uh, from uh, the linear syntax, and this is Lancelot Andrews' method, uh, is not in error because in a world where God informs everything and where God's meaning is in fact the meaning of every item in ob- and object, you can't go wrong. So my complaint against Scalia is that he was importing a theological method a lot, a theological method of interpretation. Um, into uh, the the judicial arena of the Supreme Court. And that leads to an inevitable question for me to present to you, and that is, 
speaking as a, as an observer from outside, what would you then say to Christians about, and Christian preachers in particular, uh, the heirs of Lancelot Andrews? What would you say to us about how we should understand this scripture as a text? Well, uh, again, uh, I think that uh, I hear I follow Augustine uh, in On Christian Doctrine, uh, which is an extended meditation about how to read both the uh, Bible uh, and the world, uh, that is, as Augustine and so many others have said, uh, is God's uh, book. Uh, so that I think that the biblical text uh, can be read in any way or direction, uh, so long as the message or truths delivered by the reading are consonant with the basic truths of the faith. Uh, so I don't think that the kinds of constraints uh, and uh, in, in, in and uh, empirical demands that attend the interpretation of legal texts apply to the interpretation of sacred texts. So let me take you back to Duke University, where famously you were head of the English department. There's a divinity school right across the lawn. How, oh, would, yes. how, how would your approach to texts have differed from what was being taught uh, in, the, uh, in the divinity school right there on the same campus? I'm not sure, uh, actually although I should have inquired because one of my closest friends and my next-door neighbor um, is, was uh, a man named Stanley Horowitz, whose name I assume you know. He has also been a guest on this program, yes. Yeah, great man. Uh, but I never, I never did uh, inquire into what exactly would, what was being taught in the Divinity School uh, in, 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 in terms of uh, biblical interpretation. You know, in terms of your work, uh, I, I honestly find just about every page of your writing interesting. And, and uh, one of the things I'd, I'd like to talk about when we have time is, is, is the academy. But before turning to that, uh, a more urgent uh, question comes to my mind. In 1996, you wrote an article that, uh, that sparked a great deal of controversy in the journal First Things. It was entitled, Why We Can't Just Get Along. And uh, so it's 20 years old this year. And, uh, and in it, you were drawing the, uh, well, you were really challenging Christian believers that we had better take into account uh, just how radical is the, uh, is, is the distinction between the Christian uh, understanding of the world and of truth and of, uh, and, and of all as compared to the, uh, the, 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 the increasingly secular uh, dominance in the culture. So that was 20 years ago. If anything, uh, that distance has not grown smaller. How would you update your argument for 2016? Well, yes, I think that is what I was arguing, and it's not unlike the argument that Stanley Howes made in Resident Aliens um, and, and uh, others uh, uh, of his books. And I think that the, uh, shall we say, the, the distance between uh, religious forms of thought and secular empirical forms of thought has become even greater uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is that the uh, turn to personal religion in the sense that religion now has for many people uh, come to mean a relationship between oneself and one's God that is unmediated uh, by any church structure or by any set of doctrines. Um, and, uh, and therefore, uh, therefore, the whole um, connection between organized religion and the religious life uh, seems to have become attenuated. The other factor that has contributed is, I think, the uh, popularity of the other factor that has contributed is, I think, the uh, popularity of, of what uh, you called a moment ago the new atheists, uh, and their arguments became well-known and um, have received a lot of media attention, uh, aided by uh, um, commentators and comedians like Bill Maher uh, and, and others. I was just listening to a program today on 
NPR, where there was some research done by uh, the Pew Research Foundation and others indicating that a serious religious commitment, that is a commitment that uh, involves some set of specific beliefs and some doctrines, is less and less a part of what uh, especially the younger generation is offering. Well, when you look at that and, uh, and, and come to understand that, that distance growing greater, what, what would you say to evangelical Christians? Speaking, speaking from your vantage point in the culture, what would you say we had better understand about uh, the reality of this cultural moment? Well, I think what you would better understand is that, uh, and maybe I shouldn't say better, I mean, I'm not in any position to tell people exactly what they should understand. Uh, but it seems to me that the culture is now not hospitable to taking religious belief uh, and religious perspectives seriously. Um, and what we might call the Eisenhower Doctrine is what now rules American thinking about religion. Remember, years and years ago, Eisenhower spoke of, of the Americans as a religious people and said, and this is not an exact quote, it doesn't matter what religion it exactly. is. Exactly, yes. Uh, and to say that sounds ecumenical and generous and tolerant, but what it does is cut the heart out of religion. Religion, independently of a set of beliefs, is, I believe, a curiously empty thing. But it's that thing which is now uh, gaining popularity. And I certainly don't know how to counsel anyone uh, or any, uh, any group uh, that, that wishes to uh, uh, deal yes. uh, with this phenomenon. I don't know. I guess the answer to your question is I don't know. Well, that's fair and, and honest, but uh, a question I had to ask you, given uh, your very provocative uh, assertion and analysis back in 1996. But let, let me say that what was missing in 1996 in terms of the public discussion was, the, was what is now, and uh, even on the day we are having this conversation, chillingly apparent, and, uh, and, and that is the resurgence of Islamic terrorism. So let me ask you, oh, yes. how, how in the world does a secular world uh, come to terms with the kind of theological argument that uh, the Islamic State and others are making. It's, it seems to me that what you hear from many secular authorities is the denial that theology can matter. Then they don't know what to do with a reality that makes very clear that theology does matter. Yeah, well, the way in which people deal with this, that is, secularists deal with this, is the way that they've been dealing with it ever since oh, the middle of the 19th century. And that's to call these people crazy, uh, as if there was something wrong with their brains, uh, and that if we could only get them to read the right books or to take the right medicine, everything would be all right. Uh, so that's the only way in which uh, liberalism can deal with religion. Either religion is some, something safely quarantined in the private space, and then we can give it due honor, or religion takes itself seriously, uh, which is an indication that uh, some people have quite literally gone off their rockers. Uh, and th that seems to be about the limit. Uh, now, of course, the fact of the Islamic State and the deeds that are performed uh, in its name gives uh, great uh, comfort of a negative kind. Uh, to the new atheists and to commentators like Bill Maher um, and others, because they can then say, see, that's what religion leads to. Not only is it empty and a fairy tale and a residue uh, of medieval ignorance, uh, it's also flat-out dangerous. And then you come to proposals like the proposal recently uh, made by candidate uh, Donald Trump to uh, not allow Muslims uh, into this country, presumably because 
they have some belief in their head, which is like a virus or a disease, and we don't want to catch it. But that's where we are. Now, just finally, turning to the Modern Academy, the Modern College and University campus, uh, how would your approach fare now uh, in the uh, in the Contemporary Academy? Uh, th- that world seems to be shifting so fast, where postmodernism and, and, and uh, structuralism and then post-structuralism have given way to, to any number of other um, uh, to, to any other numbers of, of philosophical and ideological approaches, the, the breakup of the discipline seems to be continuing unabated. Um, is the very possibility of a university still alive and cogent? I believe it is, and I don't think that the disciplines are really breaking up at all. The disciplines are doing what they're always doing, examining their assumptions, admitting new materials into the curriculum, uh, downplaying some materials that were for a long time at the core, uh, of the curriculum, there's always been there's been a lot of talk in the last forty or fifty years about interdisciplinarity um, and of the uh, invidious effects of uh, having uh, disciplines. But as far as I can tell, that's all talk. It's still the case that if you want to figure out what's going on in some feature uh, of our world, uh, you utilize the tools of whatever branch of academic knowledge is relevant, whether they're the tools of literary criticism or sociology or psychology or anthropology or empiricism or whatsoever. So I don't think that the disciplines are, uh, uh, that that disciplines uh, are in danger. Uh, I think that there's a lot, there there are continuous challenges within the academy to the very assumptions uh, that make the academy what it is. Uh, but that's a very healthy process, uh, so long as it doesn't lead to the activity of blowing up the whole enterprise. If what you're continually doing is searching, uh, uh, subjecting the enterprise to a searching inquiry, that's a good thing. Now, what we're seeing on campus in the last eight months to a year and a half, that is the rise of things like trigger warnings, accusations of microaggressions, uh, the practice of non-platforming, that is not allowing people with whose views you disagree to speak uh, on campus, Uh, the uh, demand for safe spaces, all of that. That, I think, is a direct assault on the university and a dangerous one, uh, because what the what what the net effect of all of this student agitation is is to turn the university uh, into a political instrument uh, or into an instrument of uh, general cultural therapy, uh, and once you do that, once you lose that idea of contemplative inquiry that comes down to us in the rest and tradition from Plato and Aristotle, once you lose that, then there's no way in which the university world can be defended because then it will be just like everything else, uh, an arena of politics or of self-discovery, depending on which direction you go in. So everything depends from my point of view on remembering what it is that a university is for and adhering to the distinction between uh, contemplatively studying matters and entering into a discussion about policy decisions or electoral politics. Once that wall is breached, once that wall is breached, uh, then I think the university enterprise is in danger of being lost. And uh, in the present situation, many administrators uh, are caving in to the students uh, in ways that will hasten that loss. Um, And very few are making the kind of firm statement that the president of Harvard, Drew Faust, made when Students demanded that the university divest from fossil fuel stocks because of a uh, disapproval of the fossil fuel industry. And she simply said, 
Harvard is an academic institution, and for us to make decisions on the basis of political considerations would be to lose uh, the heart of what the academy is. And I think that is exactly right. But I fear that uh, she is one yes. of the few who will have the strength to say that. One final question, Dr. Fish. When it comes to education and the role of the uh, college or the university, uh, you rather uh, surprisingly, at least to many, you, you say that uh, universities should be in the business of forming character. Uh, you, you reject that idea. Yeah, I do. And uh, you say that uh, instead uh, the university should stay at its business, which isn't the formation of character, but something else. Yes. Uh, character formation is a good thing. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's something that I think that uh, parents should be concerned with, uh, Churches, synagogues, and mosques should be uh, concerned with. Uh, uh, some cultural agencies um, in, the, uh, in, in, in the government should be concerned with. But it's not the university's business. I, for example, am trained as a literary critic and then trained myself to be also uh, a legal academic. And I'm, I think, I think I have the competence to pronounce on some literary and some legal matters. I have no competence whatsoever um, in the fashioning of character. Uh, so that my, my obligation to my students in a class is to present to them an up-to-date set of materials relevant to whatever the title of the course is, and then introduce them to the methods of analysis that are now competing in the field with the idea of making them, that is making the students, competent practitioners of the discipline's art, whatever it is. That's my obligation, and it's a big one. It's a hard task, especially if you only have 14 or 15 weeks to do it. Uh, so that's the task that we, in fact, have been assigned and assigned ourselves and, and have assigned ourselves uh, and it doesn't behoove us to take on other tasks however worthy they may be uh, for which we are spectacularly untrained always provocative always honest uh, always engaging professor stanley fish thank you so much for joining me today for thinking in public well it was great to be here and i hope it's less than five years uh, less than five years before we do it again. I, uh, I will make you the assurance that uh, I'll look forward to the next conversation far sooner than that. Okay. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. conversation with Stanley Fish is a tour de force. It's an intellectual feast. And one of the most interesting things about the conversation with Professor Fish is he is so ambiguous about where he stands on these crucial questions. It is like talking to someone who has commented intelligently on almost everything, who has been a provocateur across any number of issues and realms of human thought, and yet one who does not disclose what he believes about almost anything. That is an interesting role to play, and yet that's a role that Stanley Fish has fulfilled in American public life for any number of decades now. And it's interesting to note that in his eighth decade of life, he is still very much at it, as this new book, mostly a compilation of columns he's written for the New York Times, makes very clear. Just consider the comprehensiveness of the subtitle of this book. Again, the title is Think Again, but the subtitle is Contrarian Reflections on Life, Culture, Politics, Religion, Law, and Education. Few are they who would take on all of those realms of thought in one book, not to mention in a series of columns. But you'll notice that first word in the subtitle as well, contrarian. Stanley Fish has thrived on his reputation intellectually, academically, and publicly as a contrarian. Several interesting angles from the conversation come immediately to mind. One is the fact that when you're talking with Stanley Fish, you're talking with someone who, unlike so many in the Academy, actually reads what we might say is uh, our literature. To read this book is to understand that Stanley Fish, though not writing at all from a confessing Christian perspective, nor even from a vantage point of declared theism in any sense, Stanley Fish has read major Christian literature. He is able to cite Augustine. He will repeatedly cite Bunyan's 
Pilgrim's Progress, he understands that Christianity is a sustained intellectual community and a sustained intellectual argument, and one that, unlike the so-called New Atheists, he takes seriously. As a matter of fact, one of his central critiques of the New Atheists is that what they are rejecting is not Christianity as it has been lived and believed throughout the centuries. He dismisses as superficial and as unfair the kind of criticism that comes from the new atheist concerning the problem of evil and suffering. He does not say that it is not a problem, but he makes very clear that Christians and Jews and others have struggled with that question for a very long time. And speaking specifically of Christianity, he is able to cite the sources and even the developing contours of that conversation. The other thing you have to note about talking with Stanley Fish is that he is honest about where we stand speaking in this sense of evangelical Christians. Speaking to the situation of Christian believers, that is, those who hold to the cognitive truth claims of Christianity in the late modern age, I mentioned that article back in 1996 that he wrote for First Things, which is entitled, Why We Can't Just Get Along. It was a very interesting argument that he made then, and one that he updates, actually, in this new book, Think Again. The argument basically comes down to this. It's what James Orr, that Scottish theologian, was talking about in the late 19th century when he said that between the Christian worldview and the modern view of the world, as he called it, there is, in his words, a deep and radical antagonism. That is exactly what Stanley Fish is talking about. If you understand Christianity as Christianity and you understand the modern secular worldview as a worldview, you come to understand that between them, there is indeed a deep and radical antagonism. Stanley Fish goes right at the more liberal side here, and that's not a political statement. That's an ideological statement. By liberal, he means that set of beliefs based in human freedom that marks the modern world, the advent of modernity. The deal that the liberals sought to make in terms of political philosophy was that religion would be tolerated so long as it would reduce itself and retreat into a merely private sphere. But as Stanley Fish understands, that's what serious religious belief cannot do. Speaking specifically of Christianity, that's what Christianity cannot do. Because the Christian truth claim is not merely a matter of private significance, but of public significance. It is, as many have declared, a public truth. The apostles were not declaring a private conviction. They were declaring public truth, and so must we as well. I appreciate the candor with which Stanley Fish refers to that kind of deal, a deadly deal offered to theism by the modern world as a form of intellectual apartheid. That is exactly what it is. And he points to the fact that liberalism, too, is making comprehensive claims. That goes back to John Rawls, the political philosopher identified in this book by Stanley Fish, who said that in the modern public square, there must be no assertions of what he called comprehensive doctrines. That would be a comprehensive worldview. But as I asserted in my conversation with Professor Fish, and as he affirmed in his own inevitable way, it is those who declare an absolute distinction between the public and the private who do not admit that they themselves are holding to a worldview that is not merely limited to the private, but is in every way extended into the public. A couple of other matters to which we must give attention. First, interpretation in the text. If Stanley Fish has been identified with anything throughout his academic career, it has been about text and the proper interpretation of text. And in that sense, something very interesting is happening here. As I mentioned, Stanley Fish stands between two extremes. The two extremes are this. One is epistemological realism. That is the hermeneutical understanding, the understanding that our responsibility is to come to terms with the text exactly as it is. On the other hand, and at the other extreme, you have those who are holding to some form of postmodern thought and a deconstructionist hermeneutic that suggests that the text itself does not matter. Perhaps the text is itself the problem that must be overcome. Stanley Fish places himself, as you heard in this conversation, somewhere between those two extremes. But where? That's the crucial issue. That's where his intellectual engagement with Justice Antonin Scalia is really, really interesting. In those two articles in which he argues first that Antonin Scalia was right, and then secondly, that Antonin Scalia was wrong, he says that the mothership, that was his word, that combines both Scalia and Fish is the mothership of originalism, the understanding that original in intent should guide interpretation. But he said where they diverged, and this is very crucial for us, 
Where they diverged was in Scalia's textualism over against his own intentionalism. He suggested that textualism, Scalia's position, is problematic because Scalia could just go to the dictionary and find anything he wanted to find. He suggested that instead there was more control when it came to interpreting by means of the intention of the authors. I appreciated by the fact his candor in saying that some form of originalism is not just a method of interpretation, it is interpretation. To that degree, evangelical Christians would be in wholehearted agreement with Stanley Fish. But where we can't go along in terms of his interpretive strategy is where he departs from the text into interpretation. It's one thing, by the way, to do that with the U.S. Constitution. It's another thing altogether to use that approach when it comes to the Bible. And that's because when we're talking about the Bible, we are talking about what Christians believe to be not only an authoritative book, but a totally true and trustworthy book. And not only that, the inspired, the verbally inspired Word of God. Now, that puts that realm of interpretation in an entirely different category of possibility. Because if indeed we're talking about intention, when it comes to believing Christians and the confessing church, that means that the original intention is God's own intention. And that intention is available to us, well, here Justice Scalia is smirking in the background, only in terms of the words of the text, its grammatical structure the text itself. But we're indebted to Stanley Fish for making us think ever more carefully about this. One of the most important things that Christians need to do is listen attentively to those outside our belief system speak even in very challenging ways to us. Someone like Stanley Fish thus offers us a rare opportunity to make certain that we're thinking clearly even when we speak, not only to the general public, but when we speak to ourselves. It helps us to understand why we must be so attentive to a hermeneutic, that is to a method of interpretation when it comes to Scripture, that is faithful to Scripture as Scripture. It's very interesting that Stanley Fish, when he comes to Scripture, even standing outside the church, speaks with respect of how the church, through the consensus fide, that is through the consensus of the faith, or the rule of faith, has actually read the Scripture throughout the 20-plus centuries of the existence of the Christian church. Again, it goes back to the fact that he understands there has been a sustained interpretive, theological, doctrinal, confessional discussion throughout the history of the Christian church. That is something that even many Christians do not well recognize. Finally, our conversation ended in terms of the modern academy. That's where Stanley Fish has made his home and made his reputation now for any number of decades. One of those interesting things about Stanley Fish is that he does believe in academic freedom, but he doesn't believe that that means the freedom of academics to do anything other than academics. And it also means that he conscribes, he limits the responsibility of the university to teaching, to the, the appropriate fields of academic endeavor. He says that the development of character is simply outside the competence or the job description of the university. Now, we need to note something. That turns the very idea of the university going back to its medieval roots or even its 20th century manifestation, especially in the first half of the 20th century, and understanding that education necessarily involves character. This is where the Christian worldview based in Scripture comes back to remind us that there is no such thing. There is no such entity or reality as education that biblically defined does not involve the heart as well as the mind. That's why for Christians... It's simply impossible to say that education and character formation can be separated. I respect Stanley Fish when he says that that is primarily the job of parents, but let's face it, anyone who teaches in any realm of endeavor, who teaches any subject to any person at any time, is seeking to reach not only the head but the heart. And that, again, is explained by the biblical worldview that tells us that being made in the image of God, this is how God made us for His glory. We are thinking, feeling, intuiting, observing, cogitating creatures. And all the time, it involves both our head and our heart. Knowledge and character are, for the Christian, inseparable. Finally, we have to be very thankful to Stanley Fish as an example of how to be intellectually honest throughout a lifetime. One of the things you have to understand is that this is a man who has written and said what he has believed throughout his lifetime, and he has been very willing to knock over any number of the idols of the contemporary academy in order to make his arguments. At the end of the day, though, it's really, really interesting. It's absolutely vital from a Christian perspective to understand that Stanley Fish doesn't leave us with any particular worldview, with any particular truth claim, with any particular place to stand. 
And that means that at the end of the day, as much as we might admire his insight and his ability to critique, we have to stand somewhere, and where we stand had better be right. It had better be standing in truth. But in that light, it is our responsibility to fulfill the title of Stanley Fish's new book, not only to think, but to think again. Once again, thanks to Professor Stanley Fish for joining me for this conversation. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.